This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. I'm Danny Hewson and I'm joined by a new addition to the team, AJ Bell's pensions and savings expert, Charlene Young. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Danny. Thank you. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here. And I'm in the hot seat today to chew over another busy week for markets, a week which saw shares in UK house builders fall after the CMA announced an investigation into whether they've been sharing commercially sensitive information, which could have affected house prices. There is lots of speculation about what might and what might not be in next week's budget, but the IFS has been warning against tax cuts unless the Chancellor can prove the country can afford them. And global markets are still looking sprightly after NVIDIA's barnstorming results. Dan Coatesworth has been chatting to a couple of people who know tech stocks inside out and backwards. We'll hear from Manish Bajaj from Brown Advisory's U.S. Flexible Equity Fund, which has invested in most of those magnificent seven. And now the dust has settled, we've brought back George Dent from BNY Mellon Long-Term Global Equity Fund. Plus, Tan and Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine mull over whether Disney has really lost its way. And good news, finally, on food inflation. So a lot to get through, but let's start with that investigation into house building. Danny, what has the CMA said? Yeah, this was really interesting, and I think it caught quite a lot of people on the hop by the scale of what the CMA has been looking into. And the main thing that it said, which really caught people's attention, is that it is going to investigate whether or not eight house builders Um, were sharing commercially sensitive information that could affect the price of a home. So this is things like the sales prices and incentives for buyers saying that it could disrupt competition. So we saw these um, house builders, Barrett, Bellway, Barclay, Bloor Homes, Persimmon, Redrow, Taylor Wimpy and Vistry, um, all of those were included in this. Now, It was a a really lengthy sort of investigation that the CMA has been taking a look at, just generally taking a look at how the planning system works, saying that there needs to be an awful lot more money spent on that, an awful lot of reform and regulation. Also, things like estate management charges. A lot of people don't realise that on top of buying their home, they then have to pay an estate management charge for things like um, green spaces, roads, drains. The average charge is £350 and 80% of homes by those biggest builders um, between 2021 and 2022 were subject to that charge. And that is because councils are sort of pulling back from taking on those extra things because they're struggling themselves with resources. And what the CMA also said is, look, the planning system is way too complicated and building houses is taking far too long. And the fact that there was so much put on these private developers with a responsibility to shareholders that, you know, those kind of houses that were needed, the affordable houses in the right places where people wanted to buy them at the right prices, that was becoming more and more difficult to get hold of. So 
we know already that this is going to be a huge part of the um, any sort of election campaigning. Lots of focus on house building, lots of focus on people's ability to get on the housing ladder and to move and buy homes. So um, it, it was really interesting to see what the CMA had to say. And a spokesperson for the House Building Federation said, look, we welcome recognition that the planning system needs reform. And all of those house builders said that they would work alongside and cooperate with the CMA on its investigation. And what's been the market reaction to this? I don't think you'd be surprised that uh, house builders saw their shares fall. And it wasn't just on the day that the CMA launched its investigation that house builders' shares fell, because we also had an update from Taylor Wimpy, which really revealed the extent of the impact of the slowdown on the housing market just this morning. We're recording this on Wednesday. And its operating profit has halved to just £470 million, revenue down by over a fifth. It was really interesting, though, because it was talking about the average selling price on private completions. That had actually gone up to £370,000, an overall average selling price, 3.5% to £324,000. So that just gives you some idea when you compare it with an average house price, which is under £300,000, of the kind of um, environment that these big house builders are really pitching in. Now, Chief Executive Jenny Daly said, look, it is still early in the year. The microeconomic backdrop remains uncertain, but it is encouraging to see some signs of improvement in the market. But I think for a lot of people, and certainly for investors, something which would really have caught the eye is the fact that Taylor Wilkie does expect to build fewer homes this year. And of course, at a time when there's such a big focus on building more homes, uh, that is going to be quite a difficult one for the likes of the Chancellor to deal with when he is coming up with his budget. Uh, and I know certainly the budget is making headlines at the moment. It doesn't matter which paper you pick up. There is speculation about whether or not there will be a tax cut, which sectors might be helped. And Charlene, the IFS has warned that if the Chancellor is going to splash the cash, that he must prove to the country that he can afford it. Yeah, so bets are on as to how Jeremy Hunt might try and lower the personal tax burden. And the front runner right now is um, actually another cut to national insurance. So a further cut of one percentage point to the employed rates would cost an estimated £4.5 billion a year. And the IFS, as you say, have come out pretty strongly to say that they're not really sure how this all adds up for the government, um, particularly alongside its own commitment to get the debt to GDP ratio falling in five years time. So even though Jeremy Hunt might be looking at what he calls smart tax cuts in order to boost growth, there's some serious doubts as to whether the economic boost will actually be enough, even if the government might see a little bit of headroom thanks to the reduced cost of servicing the interest on the current debt pile. But just with that little sip, I think we'll save the rest of the budget chat for for next week because we have a special episode covering all the announcements and the details that you'll want to know that come out on the 6th of March. So... Heading back to London markets now, after a lot of talk of companies leaving or shunning London, is there a potential arrival, Danny? There is a potential arrival. Um, do you get Shein packets to your door, Charlene? Are your kids into Shein? 
Um, not quite yet, but I've heard a lot about it. It seems very, very popular. I have two teenage daughters, as regular listeners to the podcast will know, and they are 16 and almost 18. And yes, we get a lot of Sheen parcels through the door. It just seems to deliver the right stuff in the right way at the right price. And because of that, it is incredibly successful. And in fact, it made 1 billion in UK sales in two years from selling two pound t-shirts, four pound dresses, you know, all of those things that it is incredibly well known for. And um, that is according to its account. It pumps out huge amounts of really cheap, clobber and in fact it's been dubbed asos or boohoo on steroids but it is huge and bosses at the firm have valued it at around um, 32 billion pounds and apparently they are considering london now this is down to the fact that there's been intense scrutiny from regulators in the united states we've spoken on this podcast many times before about the fact that a lot of uh, companies are choosing to leave London to move to New York because there's more money there or companies like Arm are choosing to list in New York because they think they can get better valuations. And certainly Sheehan has looked at New York, but there are concerns about the scrutiny from regulators over in New York. And that has now set the pigeons racing and expectation is mounting that potentially Sheehan might choose London. Now, we know that Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has held talks with the chairman, Donald Tang, about the potential of bringing Sheehan to London. Remember, London raised less than a billion pounds in listings last year. So being able to grab Sheehan is absolutely massive and potentially it could be the biggest listing for London ever. But is it a poison chalice? Because when you think about the ethical and environmental issues that surround fast fashion, when you think about the potentials issues down the track with regulation, with provenance, then you know, that there are sort of big red flags. But of course, some investors will just see Sheen as an opportunity to buy shares in a huge name that is absolutely banging competitors in terms of market share at the moment. And a bit more speculation this time that curries might become the subject of a bidding war. What's going on there, Danny? Yes, we know that Elliott Investors um, launched an initial bid for Curry's. Well, it has come back with a second bid for the British electrical retailer. So um, Curry's, yeah, it um, uh, the first um, attempt by Elliott's was for seven. 100 million. It's moved that up to 757 million. But that bid, again, has been turned down by the board of Curry's. Now, I was taking a look at um, what Curry's was valued at just a few years ago. And four years ago, it was actually valued at 1.5 billion pounds. And following that mad rush post-pandemic, when people were you know, only able to spend on stuff. It was um, valued in April 2021 at £1.8 billion. 
But then back in November, just 580 million. So, you know, even that initial bid for curries looked quite good. But the board said, no, look, it is totally undervalued. And even that £757 bid, which Elliot has um, upped the offer to, um, still does look pretty cheap. And this has been an issue for UK PLC as a whole, where markets really have been suppressed and a lot of shares have really, really taken a bit of a beating over the past couple of years. So we know that the board is saying, right, well, that is not enough. So what will be enough? Um, it has been struggling. You know, we, we've seen customers cutting back on spending, particularly for things like big ticket items. You know, there's big tech purchases, TVs and laptops and that kind of thing. But there are green shoots. And although it saw a 3% drop in sales over the Christmas period compared with the same period last year, you know, it's got huge market share. It is in the middle of a turnaround plan. It's spent a lot of money on developing extra revenue streams, things like insurance, things like servicing, things like repurposing. And all of those things make this an incredibly attractive company, so attractive that JD.com, the Chinese super retailer, is also expressing an interest in buying curries. And of course, now that Elliot's has put more skin in the game, there is a lot of speculation that that will now push JD.com to put forward some kind of formal bid and really ratchet up the price. And even though investors have, have not exactly been in love with curries over the past year or so, it does seem undervalued. So some kind of a bidding war, which pushes the valuation of curries up, I think is definitely a good thing. But I think the interest and excitement in British firms is really good. And it just demonstrates the kind of successful businesses that we do have here in the UK. Because there's been such dominance over the past few weeks of the Magnificent Seven. It's a term used to describe seven of the biggest companies on the US stock market. And this bunch has been delivering stellar share price gains over the last year. It features Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, Meta, Microsoft, Nvidia, and Tesla. To find out how much they've contributed to the overall US market games, we thought it was worth getting an expert on the show who is invested in most of these stocks. Manich Bajaj is Portfolio Manager of Brown's Advisory US Flexible Equity Fund, and he joins us now to talk with Dan Coatsworth about NVIDIA, Tesla and more. Over to you, Dan. So I think there's been lots of reports that the US stock market gains since the start of 2023. I've solely been down to this magnificent seven group of stocks. But so if you if you exclude those gains, how has the S&P 500 actually performed? Yes. So uh, last year was quite impressive for the equity markets. The S&P 500 index saw a total return of around 26%. So the performance was indeed strong. Now, this number does include the returns of the magnificent seven and the seven largest companies in S&P 500 which make up roughly 30% of the index weight. And these seven stocks have collectively returned 100% during last year. 
So, uh, and they have outsized influence on the index because of their weight. Now, if you were to X out their contribution and look at the returns of the remaining 493 companies in the index, they amounted to nearly 10%. So far cry from 26%, but 10% is not shabby though. So not too bad. I know in your your fund, you've got sort of exposure to, to most of them. I noticed that Tesla um, and NVIDIA, not in your top 10 holdings. Do, do, do you have any stakes in them at all? Uh, and perhaps if, if you don't, what, what is it you don't like about those names? Sure. So we do own five of the seven, and we've owned them for a while. And each one of the five has been a long-term holding of ours. So three of the five we have held over a decade, three of, of the five magnificent seven. And um, and uh, and there are two which we have held for more than five years. And it's quite interesting how the names in this, the, the name for these group keeps on evolving. And, uh, you know, we first started off with the FANG. It was Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Then as time went by, Apple and Microsoft joined the party and it was about Fangam and eventually Netflix stepped out. And last year, NVIDIA and Tesla stepped in and now we're talking about Magnificent Seven. So it seems like the media always has a new nickname based on um, whose flavor of the month. So as you rightly observe, we have not picked Tesla and NVIDIA. Um, they are powerhouses, undoubtedly, and they have created a lot of value in the marketplace, both for their customers and for shareholders. Now, our fund is pretty focused. We have about 40 to 45 names in the portfolio. There are far more names that we don't own uh, that, um, and, and than we own. So we're clearly making choices on what to own and what not to own. And this is, of course, based on our understanding of how the future could evolve for these companies. Now, we have our eyes on risks too. In addition, when we are thinking about investing, we're looking for bargains and we're looking to get a lot for our money. So we are careful not overpaying for these businesses. Now, getting the future right is not uh, a walk in the park. And we have to admit that in both Nvidia's and Tesla's case, we underestimated the earnings power as well as the high multiples investors will be willing to pay for them. Um, now, in our investment team, we are generally a conservative bunch and try to play safe. And these stocks have done really, really well. And uh, we avoid chasing stocks. So um, as it stands today, Tesla is rich for a liking. Well, let's you know take a look at some of these numbers. So five years ago, the overall revenue for Tesla was close to $25 to $30 billion. And this year, analysts are expecting sales of about $110 billion. So very rapid growth against all odds. So kudos to Tesla for becoming such a dominant player in the automotive space. Now, however, if you go below the top line and focus on free cash flows, which we really care about, the picture is not as rosy. So their free cash flow estimates for 2024 are roughly four to $5 billion. Interestingly, their market capitalization is about $700 billion. So if you're an investor that emphasizes free cash flows to shareholders, it's not hard to conclude that the stock appears to be rich on this metric, and it's not much of a bargain. Auto is a tough space overall, lots of competition, relatively low margins, and this is capital intensive. So thus far, we have avoided 
uh, Tesla. Now, the story is somewhat different for NVIDIA. And here, too, this NVIDIA has had explosive growth. And they're benefiting from this rapid investment the cloud infrastructure, infrastructure vendors are making around generative AI. And NVIDIA is essentially powering the AI across all these cloud platforms. And in NVIDIA's case, the incremental sales are also translating to much higher margins and profits, which is great. What gives us a bit of pause is that we seem to be in this AI build-out frenzy, and we just don't know how long the legs of growth will be. So our view is that a lot of goodness is priced in, in the current multiples of uh, NVIDIA. And the company may deliver or even exceed what is being priced in, but we are not taking it to the back. In terms of, obviously, one of the key themes behind these sort of the tech stocks and why they've been doing well is 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 the excitement around AI, artificial intelligence. Um, now, I know, I know obviously that a lot of the Magnificent Seven sort of playing to this theme, but there are other companies as well. So, um, you know, like, like the ones providing data to train AI models. Are you invested in sort of the, any of these sort of the, the non-obvious AI plays? Absolutely. So the cool thing about AI is that its perks aren't just for the big tech giants that are pumping out these fancy AI models, um, like those massive language ones we keep on hearing about. It's going to be also a goldmine for any company sitting on treasure trove of unique data. Think about it. Companies like Adobe, United Health, Intuit, Uber, and Progressive, they've all got this rich, deep pool of data, which they have been collecting over the years. And they're just starting to scratch the surface of what they can do with it. We will see many of them roll out some of these interesting new services or seriously up their game on the stuff which they already offer. So it's, uh, it's like we are at the beginning of a whole new era where AI is the magic key that unlocks all sorts of doors in different industries. Thanks to Manish for coming on the show. We're not quite done with tech yet, though. So listeners might remember we had a chap called George Dent on the show a few weeks ago talking about Microsoft. He was so good that we thought it was worth getting him back to talk about another part of the tech space where there's lots of interesting stuff going on. So Dan recently caught up with him to better understand the semiconductor space, as this is so important to the broader tech sector. George started off by going back to basics and explaining what semiconductors are and why they're so important. Very simplistically, a semiconductor is what you or I would think of as a microchip. Um, so you break that down into processes. Um, so essentially the kind of brains of computers, smartphones, uh, increasingly things like cars. Uh, and it is a, you know, it's the brain. Um, although, yeah, let's think of it as the, the kind of brain. Uh, and then you've got, um, you know, memory and memory. I'm, I'm realizing the kind of limitations of my brain analogy now. Uh, but the process is the thinking bit, um, does the kind of the number crunching. The memory is like our memory. It, it's what sort of stores values and, and kind of information. And, and the two bits uh, or the two kind of sides have relatively different dynamics uh, when it comes to the kind of the, the two markets. But both uh, you know, benefit from good structural tailwinds um, because of, you should kind of expect, you know, ever greater demand for computing power 
Um, you know, whether that's you and I wanting our iPhones to become ever flashier, do more, get faster, uh, wanting our computers to store ever more kind of photos, or at the kind of cutting edge, of course, things like AI, hugely demanding when it comes to kind of processing power uh, and that driving, you know, yet yet more demand for um, processing and, and to an extent memory chips. I mean, the, the, you know, they're, they're involved in an ever increasing innovative technology space, but semiconductor industry is actually quite cyclical, isn't it? So, I mean, what, what, what's, what's been happening over the last sort of year? Am I right in saying it's been in a bit of, a, of an oversupply situation? Is, is there any sort of sign that that's turning around now? Yes, so, so you're quite right. Uh, the semiconductor area does tend to be quite cyclical, uh, and that cyclicality stems from ultimately consumer cyclicality. So, you know, demand for smartphones, iPads coming and going through time as, as economic cycles kind of fluctuate. Um, you know, I alluded to the kind of broadly two different kind of camps. I mean, you can actually subdivide it beyond that within um into more kind of areas but memory um to your point is the area that's been seeing the kind of the big cycle so um you know there there you saw um something of a kind of down cycle um and you're now it would seem kind of coming out of of the other end when it comes to processes you know there's a different there's a, there's a whole big spectrum there the kind of cutting edge of processes um you know less cyclical uh but the, the so the tail end the kind of the, the let's say the the trailing edge um, you know that again can be kind of subject to to sort of cycles. Um, so uh, you know different different dynamics, but, but broadly you're right. You have been through a cycle, uh, mostly pertaining to kind of memory, um, and that's you know, now we're coming out of the other end of that down cycle. One of the one of the big stocks in the sector is um, TSMC, so Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. So TSMC's results came out fairly recently, but I mean if you just look at the numbers, they weren't particularly great. Profit was down by quite a lot. But the share price actually went up on seemingly what was a, a very bullish outlook. So why is that company so optimistic about this year? Yeah, so so it, it comes back to that question around cyclicality. Uh, so TSMC, you know, again, a business that we, we've owned for many years, is right at the forefront of um, in leading edge semiconductors. Uh, so you know, very dominant when it comes to uh, cutting edge chips, but it's not immune to those cycles. And that's what you've just been through. So in relatively few years going back, um, will you see um, Taiwan Semiconductor having a kind of negative year? We've just been through one. But it's also why um, they're now much more positive on the next year. And importantly, the trend rate of growth for this business is a, is a double digit trend. Um, so you know, highly cyclical sectors tend not to be an area that we get drawn to. The exception to that is when you're dealing with a sector or a subsector that's benefiting from the kind of structural growth that makes it worth tolerating that that cyclicality, um, and, and that's how I would kind of characterise TSMC. So you know, very positive on the year ahead because you're just coming out of a cycle within part of their business, uh, but longer term, you know, again, still very kind of positive. Uh, and of course, what's driving that demand goes back to the, the point I was making earlier: is on one hand the demand for um, uh, Faster smartphones, faster tablets, but on the um, you know the server side, it's it's that really advanced computing that will have to underpin um, the rise in AI and AI hugely hugely demanding when it comes to, to kind of processing power. Therefore, you know, giving you a really big sort of boost um, as, as you look forward from here. 
um, over the next sort of five, 10, 15 years. So ASML is another well-known company in this space. In its latest results, it seems to be sort of saying the opposite to TSMC. It's saying it's, we're guiding for no sales growth this year. Why is that going through, you know, what's well, thinking differently to obviously to TSMC? Yeah, and it, it comes down to the kind of the, the nuances of the semiconductor space. Um, so ASML is essentially the business behind Moore's Law. So it's a you know, hugely important part of the semiconductor supply chain. Um, it basically, uh, lithography is, is, the, is the term for it, but it, it is responsible for kind of imprinting the chips onto, or imprinting the, the designs onto microchips. And it's that technology that determines line width and therefore speed and capacity if you're talking about, about memory. So the narrower they can make those lines, um, the faster you can make chips, the more capacious you can make memory. And if they don't make them narrower, um, then it all grinds to a halt. So, so you know, incredibly key um, and incredibly advanced. And I actually have some fun little factoids, which, are, which I'll share in a second when it comes to um, the, the machines that they're producing. But to answer your question in terms of, of this year, you know, actually, ASML in many respects you would expect to be more cyclical than, than TSMC because it's it's capital goods. You're selling machines that effectively are going into uh, these big fabs, um, and so you know, you'd think more prone to capex cycles. Um, what's made the difference this year is actually that the machines are so in demand that you've got a massive backlog. So even though some of the customers will have seen a downturn in terms of demand, um, they're still working their way through demand for for um for these the, these machines um so it sort of softened that but because it's been through a very strong year and i mean to put a number on strong year so I mean, sales were up about 30 percent in 2023 um you expect a sort of slightly softer year this year as with tsmc though this is a market which is seeing very strong structural growth uh, and that would give us every confidence that this is a business which you know yes it'll you'll it'll There'll be a bit of cyclicality in there, uh, but the trend growth rate um, really, really, um, really strong. And, and just to kind of give you a sense of what's involved with these machines, um, the so the latest technology that they're using is called EUV. Um, so the line width is basically determined by the wavelength of the light that you're, you're using. In their latest machines, uh, so every second. 50,000 droplets of molten tin get hit by two lasers. First laser flattens the droplet, uh, and the second one kind of vaporizes it to create this plasma beam. That's then reflected through various mirrors to ultimately um, uh, arrive at your kind of pattern on the microchip. But the fun bit, to give you a sense of the precision required, is that the mirrors that we're talking about here are so smooth that if you were to expand one up to the size of Germany, the biggest bump that you'd find in its surface would only be a millimeter in height. So it's absolutely kind of incredible technology. Um, the machines or the latest ones weigh about 180 tons. Uh, they cost kind of 200 million US dollars. I mean, it is amazing. Um, and yeah, I mean, just, a, just an incredible bit of, of technology. That was George Dent, who is part of the investment team managing the BMY Mellon Long-Term Global Equity Fund. Now, lots of us will be thinking hard about our household budgets. We have had good news about the energy price cap 
hurrah, it's nice to have some good news. But something that keeps making headlines is the rising cost of car insurance. Certainly, my premiums were going to go up and I have had to go back to the drawing board and try and find a cheaper deal. But the Association of British Insurers, Charlene, says that it is exploring ways to tackle rising costs. So what are the big thing behind those rising costs? Yeah, definitely feeling this one. I renewed my own car insurance about four days ago um, and it did involve a bit of to, to and fro with the, uh, the existing <laughs> yeah. insurance company to get them down in the end. So in terms of those rising costs, it's increasing thefts and certain vehicles being stolen to order and it's all increasing the cost of replacement vehicles. But we've also got rising repair costs as well. So the cost of repairs are going up with labour and energy costs, like lots of things, but vehicles are also just becoming more sophisticated and complicated all around, especially um, as we get more and more electric vehicles on the market. So what's the ABI said that it's looking to do? Yeah, so they've asked insurance providers, their members, to better explain how premiums are actually calculated and the steps that customers can take to reduce costs. So they're saying that those providers are sort of committed to, to doing that. And that will be at renewal and when comparing new policies and deals. So the ABI itself is also looking at getting together with the police and other authorities to try and firstly recover more stolen vehicles from ports in the first place, as well as exploring ways to actually prevent the theft. They've also mentioned premium finance, so where you can spread the cost of those annual payments through the year as another area where customers are being stung, like often to the tune of hundreds of pounds. So we'll keep an eye out for anything concrete to come from this. Yeah, because we're all thinking about our budgets. And certainly I know that you know people have been going through them with a fine tooth comb and trying to slice out any extra bits of spend that they can get rid of. And one of those things has been the streamers. We've seen, you know, subscription numbers fall uh, for the likes of Netflix, who then managed to get a lot of them back because they introduced uh, an ad service which cost less. Um, but lots of us have cut back. Have you cut back on the number of streaming services that you've got in your house? Well, it's a little bit more about chat versus action in this house. So <laughs> at the start of the new year, um, I definitely committed to doing this. Um, but, you know, as, as life sort of gets in the way, I've realised that I don't think I actually have cut back at all. And it's the added complication that I seem to have signed up for half of them and my husband the other half and none of us are quite admitting <laughs> who pays for what. So, uh, yeah, a lot of chat, no action in this house, sadly. I have just got rid of Disney, which didn't go down well with the youngest. And I got rid of Apple after I finished Ted Lasso. So we've got two at the moment. And I'm sort of thinking that we might flip and get maybe Disney back at some point. But, you know, it's it's tricky. In to Star Wars. And uh, yeah, let's just say my husband's also being enjoyed capitalising on that and rewatching through some of his favourites. So as we've mentioned, and definitely in this house, Disney is, is, of course, far more than just a streaming service. Everyone knows the company and what it does. But what does warrant debate is why the share price is in the doldrums. And people are saying the, co- the company's lost its way. To get under the skin of what's going on, Shares Magazine editor Tom Sieber now joins us to talk with Dan about the House of Mouse. So, hi, Tom. Good to have you on the podcast again. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me again. Now, I think before we sort of jump in with some questions, I thought it might be useful if we set the scene 
case yeah. any of our listeners haven't followed the Disney story too closely in recent years. Um, I think that the key thing here is that we've got a bit of um, I guess you can call it a revolving door. Bob Iger was the chief exec from 2005 till 2020. Yeah. Now, just before he stood down, um, Disney launched the the streaming platform, Disney Plus, in, in November 2019. And, and that was kind of well-timed because if you think a couple of months later, we were well into sort of lockdown. So there was a big appetite for streaming services. So really, you know, kind of, I'm sure, you know, Disney never thought it would play out that way. But it, it in terms of having an opportunity to attract lots of customers, it had a really good start. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, on the, the backdrop, you know, theme park income was disrupted. But I, I think at the time, investors weren't too too worried because, you know, everyone was going through the same thing and they were so excited about um, Disney+. Plus. So at this time, so we, we had a new chief exec called Bob Chapek. Yeah. Um, but post the sort of pandemic, the recovery has been a bit patchy at Disney. Um, theme parks sort of taking ages to return to normal. And it was clear that the sort of the growth in the streaming side of things couldn't keep up at such a rapid pace. Um, and of course, analysts and, and certain investors are starting to think, okay, well, hang on a minute. Disney Plus, the streaming platform, is losing a lot of money. Yeah. There was also some backlash from staff um, around Bob Chapek failing to sort of denounce Florida's don't say gay laws. So there was staff morale was pretty bad so what yeah. we had the activist investor nelson peltz came in took a position in disney asked for a seat on the board i think behind the scenes there was sort of lots of um lots of talks about okay you know you know where is disney going lots of people sort of criticizing it so at the end of 2022 bob chapek was pushed out as ceo and bob Iger was back again now yeah. at the time it was flagged okay this is a temporary thing just to get disney back on track um, the turnaround story was greeted quite well by investors, but the enthusiasm has faded away. So I guess that's that's a sort of a good background. Absolutely. So I think yeah, and they've done a really good job of summarising sort of what's been going on. Um, you're right. So Iger rejoined Disney in in November 2022, and part of the reason there was so much enthusiasm for him coming back is his first 15 year tenure that you you referenced there was, I think, you could call it a pretty unmitigated success. He drastically broadened its roster of IP, brought in Star Wars, Pixar, Marvel, um, a lot of new intellectual property, increased its presence in international markets, and he oversaw an increase in the market value of the business from $48 billion to $257 billion. So that's why there was quite a lot of faith in him in the first place, even if he'd stuffed up the succession in terms of bringing um, the other Bob, Chapek, in. And he has made some progress you know, streaming isn't racking up the same level of losses as it has before. He has taken some costs out of the business, um, but there are still continuing question marks over what happens with parks because he's announced this major investment program, which I'll probably talk a little bit more about later. And there's continuing concern over what's going to happen with the succession. And as you say, it was seen as a short term thing, but now it's looking quite a lot longer, longer term in terms of him fixing the business and then handing it over to somebody else. Um, there are some internal candidates that have been reported for the top jobs. So there's Dana Walden, who's the co-chair of Filmed Entertainment, and, and a guy called Josh Damaro, who heads up theme parks. And you've had, interestingly, a couple of people, Kevin Meyer and Tom Staggs, who at one point or at various points have been considered heir apparent to Iger, have also rejoined the company in advisory roles. 
Um, but given that he has extended his contract out to 2026, there's an admission really that there isn't yet a clear plan in place for the succession. Um, and that's made some investors in particular pretty unhappy, which is probably a good point to start talking about a little bit more about Nelson Peltz and and another activist investor. So, I mean, this is so Nelson Peltz is from um, Tryan Group, yeah. isn't it? And then, yeah, and then right. Bl- Blackwells is the the other active investors. So, I mean, obviously, when when we see activist investors on a shareholder register, immediately think, okay, what well, their playbooks are either you know, sell something if it's yeah. got hidden value, or um, bring in bring in new man. They'll find new management. Um, so, I mean, wh- where are we now with these activists? What do, what do they actually want? Have they have they gone on the public record to say? Yeah, that I mean, there has it's p- partly public and partly you know reported and sources close to that kind of thing. So the main argument, I mean, Peltz has is, is probably been the most um, vocal and the most high profile. So um, he's launched, I guess, what you would call a proxy battle with the current management, which involves trying to get a place on the board for himself and an ex-Disney CFO called Jay Rosolo. And he's also aligned himself with a former Marvel chair, Ike Perlmutter. Um, so he's... He's been talking about them becoming more profitable. He wants the streaming service. You know, they want, he wants Cross taken out of the streaming service. He's compared them unfavorably with the likes of Netflix on that score that that they're not achieving the kind of profitability that other streaming services are. He wants greater transparency um, and he wants a clear plan. Well, I think at this point he wants Iger to go essentially, but, you know, he wants a clear plan about what's going to happen with the leadership of the company. And hence, you know, he wants, he wants the influence of having a place on the boards. Um, Blackwell's, the other name has and i'll return to this a bit later on but has um recently made an argument about disney having a clearer ai strategy so the the crunch moment for um a kind of effectively a showdown with these activists is the 3rd of april when disney has set its agm so that's when there's going to be a shareholder vote on appointing pelts and rosolo and three nominees that blackwells have put forward um that that's when that's going to be voted on so that that will be a really significant date. And I think it's hard to sort of know exactly how that would go, but I would I would guess that Disney's latest results probably helped them quite a lot because while revenue came in flat, so this is the second quarter um, numbers, Disney's financial year runs to the end of September, so revenue was flat, but adjusted earnings per share came in um, around 20% higher than what the consensus was estimating. And there was a big reduction in losses in the streaming business. So they narrowed from a little over 1 billion to 216 million. And it the company confirmed it was on track to take out at least 7.5 billion pounds worth of costs by the end of September. So they've at least shown some signs of progress to the market and that might help them with shareholders while they're sort of trying to fend off pelts and blackwells well i guess any any companies sort of coming out with messages saying the cutting costs seems to be going down well with the market yeah um so now i'm sure any of our listeners will know disney plus now has um the option you can get a cheaper version with adverts yeah um Actually, I I I have switched to that myself, and I find the adverts are um, they're so short 
and I don't find that they're real inter in sort of interrupt things. Um, and I think it's fine. I can, I can live with it. And I guess that's what what are these all the streaming platforms now is a sort of banking on that. Yeah, well, um, I think there's some streaming platforms want they probably want some people to retain this sort of premium service, don't they? Because there's they they probably enjoy that kind of revenue stream, but also that it kind of diversifies a bit, doesn't it? It means they can hold on to people that would otherwise be put off by price increases, but it also means that they they're attracting advertising to the streaming platforms and that's you know that's another kind of source of revenue so yeah i think you know it's like you say it, it hasn't put you off and i think that would probably apply to a lot of other people as well so i know i mean disney has been disney sits on it's a really good intellectual property so it's got um so many of these characters it can do stuff with whether that's um you know, keep making new films or cartoons using these characters. You can use them for merchandise. They can feature in theme parks. So um, one of the criticisms of Disney recently is that they've been making loads of films and they've just actually been, just been rubbish. Yeah. So I think I get the sort of impression that they're going to go a bit more for um, quality over quantity going forward. And obviously that, that's, a, that's a good move forward. But if we, if we think about, um, you know, perhaps put, put streaming to one side, Ultimately, you know, pe people can go to any of their theme parks and, you know, they're they not cheap. They can spend a lot of money right. there and people like going there, going back again and again and again. I mean, obviously, so you, you mentioned they're going to be investing in their parks. I mean, is, is you know, surely you know, all companies like this will need to invest constantly anyway. Is there anything sort of radical that they've talked about? They're going to be I think doing? it's this. No, not really. I would say it, most of it is about incremental capacity i suppose what they don't know is kind of how both the world of entertainment and these kind of park experiences might change over you know talking about over a decade and we you know we're already seeing the introduction of things like ai you know what what that might mean i guess potentially for parks and experiences isn't 100 clear at this point but i think it's just the scale of the investment at 60 billion is seen as you know it's pretty punchy and what investors will want to see is that there's a real return on that investment, that the money's being spent kind of sensibly. I think about 70% of it has been allocated just to increasing capacity and it's being spent across the six um, Disney resorts there are globally and also across all of the cruise lines. Just sort of going back a little bit to what you said earlier about the sort of poor performance of films, you've seen um, the head of live action movies at Disney recently, um, well, it seems like fallen his sword. So that's Sean Bailey is after about a decade in the business had exited. But I think you made a really good point as well about, you know, arguably they reached oversaturation point with some of their um, universes, if you like. So, you know, Star Wars and Marvel, there's so many, there's so much content. And, you know, I suppose they can both reduce cost by not spending as much on new um film series in those universes but also and and just focus on the high quality ones but also that might help you know the standing of those brands and those um characters because you know there there is a kind of a bit of a scarcity quality it's not like there's a new marvel film out every three months you know they become more of an event so i think that 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 could be interesting potentially potentially um and i think where perhaps Disney has a bit of an edge if you were kind of looking at how it might compete with other streaming platforms. It does have, you know, essentially more at this point, more than a century of content. 
and that's content that particularly for families you know it, ha- it has real multi-generational appeal so i think that's that's interesting as well and, and whether or not they can kind of tap into that more um yes i mean what th- th- one of the things i saw that they did the other day was uh make a, a announcement saying they're going to invest a bit more into gaming and because this this is tapping into not just um you know i guess not just an adult audience it's, it's tapping into you know lots of young people you know particularly children love love gaming and and, it, and i guess it's another way for them to to interact with these characters go back to that intellectual property again what so what, what exactly are they doing yeah so they've they've done a tie up with epic games which is the company behind fortnite which i guess any parent of a teenager would probably be familiar of familiar with and that's been a huge huge franchise gaming franchise um, recently there haven't been a, hu- a huge there hasn't been a huge amount of detail beyond you know news of disney's investment in epic and the fact that they're they're doing this tie up but you can see how it could be kind of a first step on a path to really exploiting the industry leading ip we we're talking about where you've got a, a world in the future that encompasses virtual worlds and augment, augmented reality and that kind of thing because they have a really you know i guess disney's characters can have a really powerful connection with people there was um some really interesting commentary from a media um commentator matthew ball a few years ago and he said i quote there is nothing that compared to the impact of a child being hugged by her heroes the ability to enjoy your favorite intellectual property as you is unique and lasts a lifetime and you can see how that that real kind of powerful resonance could be quite and a, a real asset and a real strength as kind of areas like AI even, but also augmented reality and this sort of sense of the created virtual worlds and gaming, you know, you can see how that could be a real advantage for Disney. Um, and that's, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things Blackwells has been arguing is that Disney needs to have a clearer AI strategy. It felt quite cynical, really, what they were talking about because they essentially was saying that by having an AI strategy or clear AI strategy, Disney could double its share price. And that feels like almost just seeking to tap into what is, you know, essentially the market's hottest theme right now. But that doesn't mean that AI isn't going to play a role for Disney. And it's certainly, you know, something that they need to to be looking at and, and looking to address. Well, okay. Well, I mean, thanks, Tom, for for talking through. Clearly, lots going on there with this business. So, um, and I'm sure we'll we'll come back to you on the podcast in the future, um, particularly if we've got this sort of the the big vote in April on um, potential changes to the board. So, um, so Tom, yeah, great. Thanks very very much. Good to have you back on the pod. Yeah, good to be back, and and look forward to that. Thank you. So Tom and Dan getting under the skin of Disney. Okay, Charlene, before we go, we thought we'd just run through some quite disturbing figures on debt levels in the UK because we've got numbers from the government-funded Money and Pension Service show that 8 million people in the UK need debt advice and altogether 12 million are, in their words, living on the edge. Together, that's nearly a third of the UK population needing advice on their debts or at risk of needing it soon. So why might those 8 million need debt advice? Yeah, these these figures were quite shocking when we saw them this morning. So these 8 million people will have debts that seriously impact or might already be impacting their lives. So mortgage, rent, utility arrears, council tax as well. 
and they're in need of expert health to deal with the money that they owe. And in some cases, they might already be subject to enforcement action. So anything from bailiffs to prepayment meters being installed. So even in spite of the sheer scale of those numbers, MAPS, the Money and Pension Service, says over half of those who need urgent advice still haven't taken it. So what should they do if they're worried about mounting debts? Yeah, so obviously this is a big concern that, that over half the people haven't taken advice and that's the likely down to, to embarrassment of the situation. But MAPS have come out and said, please, please don't wait and let's take a look at online resources like the Money Helper Service. So Money Helper is from MAPS, it's online, it's free and it's backed by the government. So the most important thing here, as I say, is to know that getting in touch with these services doesn't affect your credit rating at all if you were worried about that. And the first step is all about just exploring your options and helping you to get back in control of your situation. Yeah, it's it's an incredible number of people needing help at the moment. And it has been a really difficult few years. So if you do need help, please make sure that you reach out and talk to somebody. Uh, That is about all we've got time for on this episode of the Money and Markets podcast. But we just wanted to end with a little bit of good economic news for a change. And we had some figures out from the British Retail Consortium, and it showed that the annual rate of shop price inflation had eased to its lowest level for almost two years. Now, that is down in the most part to um, food and clothing costs, sort of fashion prices. We were talking earlier about Shein, but it also showed that for the first time month on month, food prices actually fell. And for people going to the supermarket to do their weekly shop, that is so nice, Charlie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this has come about from a fall in the input costs of food. So things um, like energy, fertilizers, and that's meant the price of meat, fish and fruit has fallen, as you said. And that's fed into that shop index, as we like to call it. And um, there's also actually been an uptick in supermarket promotions and sort of price match schemes. So the latest of those coming from Morrison's joining, I think, Asda and Sainsbury's. Um, So hopefully some some good news wherever you like to do your weekly shop and and whatever you tend to buy. Yeah, I've certainly seen those signs go up. We've got a Morrison's down the road from us. And yeah, price matching. You just think, okay, that means that I know I don't have to make a million different journeys to different shops to make sure that I'm getting the best price for everything. That is if you've got the time to do that. Absolutely. Well, that's all for this week's episode. And thanks for having me on as a new presenter for my first one. So as we said earlier next week, we've got a special episode looking at whether Jeremy Hunt pulls any rabbits out of his red box and what they are going to mean for you and your money. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you found us. Thank you, Charlene, for joining us as part of the team and uh, we're going to be back next week as Charlene says looking through everything that comes out of the budget Um, until then thanks for listening before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares magazine the podcast isn't telling you if a certain investment is suitable or not Don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. 
It's also important to remember that how you're taxed will depend on your individual circumstances and rules can change. The way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.